Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Check Down Charlie's podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric. I'm joined, as always, by Theo. How are you, Theo? I'm okay. Not too bad. Just got a early start to the morning. Now it's about uh, almost lunchtime and ready to pound this uh, Giants podcast. Yeah, let's do it, man. And let's uh, being productive is always good, even on a Saturday. We're uh, working our asses off to get this uh, get this material to you. So. Where we left off was the first part of the trade. Uh, yeah. the may, trade. Uh, may I interject for a moment? Indeed. I just wanted to um, send my condolences to the, the Perkins family. Yes. Former Giants coach, one that we have talked about in great detail, Ray Perkins, has passed away this December of 2020. Rest in and, peace. Uh, and, uh, I know he was a pivotal part of Giants history. You know, he was the guy... Right before Belichick, I mean, not Belichick, but Parcells. Parcells, yeah. Patriots offense, you know, schematically was partially named after the Earhart Perkins offense. So Indeed. just wanted to send that out into the world. From what I gather, he had a, you know, a playing career in the NFL as well as, uh, you know, being a successful coach. It's good that you mentioned that, Theo, and uh, our condolences to the Perkins family. As we speak, the Giants are on quite a tear right now. Yeah, you know, starting one and seven, they're in the thick of uh, the playoff race in the NFC least. Indeed. And Joe Judge has uh, got this team turned around, right? Yeah, I mean, what I like from what I've seen of of Joe Judge, you know, every game is at least competitive. You know, like he's a football guy. You know, he's a he's a lunch pail guy. Yeah, I mean, apart from <laughs> being embarrassed by the shell of the San Francisco 49ers, I think was in week. four. Or you know, early on in the season, every single game has been extremely competitive. This all culminated in a victory against you know Russell Wilson and the and the Seahawks. Now it's on to Arizona, who Arizona are like one in four, and then the one win was that hail mary win at the last second against the Buffalo Bills. So they're over the last stretch, eh? They're really yeah. struggling. It's going to be a really interesting matchup to see Arizona and New York. I think the betting line has Arizona by two and a half. So, so it's close. Really close. Really close. Yeah. But anyway, hopefully they can stay <laughs> on par with the Washington football team and, yeah. uh, and win the division. You know what? Interestingly enough, like I'm a Dolphins fan, mm-hmm. and I, I draw a lot of parallels to the way Brian Flores is like building his team versus the way Joe Judge is. How so? And in the sense that like both guys... I know that they both came from uh, New England, but they're not intrinsically attached to the hip with Bill Belichick. You know what I mean? Like everything that Patricia did or everything that Josh McDaniels had done before, mm-hmm. comparisons were always made with Bill Belichick. You know, they were always sort of in his shadow Yeah. versus these two guys. Like they seem like they're their own men, you know, like they're their own coach. Joe Judge was going to get the uh, head coaching job at Mississippi State before going to New York. And Flores has always been talked about as a, as like a leader, even when he was just coaching the linebackers mm-hmm. and like they've sort of put their like own stamp on the team and it's not necessarily a new England stamp. It's kind of interesting. Like it's cool. You know, it's good to see that guys from that, that system are finally flourishing. Yeah, exactly. That's fair enough. And the New York giants are, are well ac- acquainted with that, uh, that coaching tree, if you will, the, the Parcells <laughs> tree by extension. I mean, where we left off in the previous episode, they had just hired Tom Coughlin, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. And they had they had just decided that he was their guy moving forward. We left off at basically the beginning of the 2004 offseason. Mm-hmm. The New York Giants were basically on the losing end of football, coming off of a 4-12 and record. The team, as we had mentioned previously, had let go of Jim Fossil mm-hmm. and brought on a familiar face in Tom Coughlin. General manager Ernie needed to fix this roster badly, essentially had to land on all of the picks in the draft that offseason. Throughout his career as an NFL executive, he was constantly reminded of the importance of the quarterback position. From working alongside John Unitas in Baltimore, like in their PR department, to bringing in Bernie Kosar in Cleveland, of course he understood this. He understood this really well. At that current point in time, the New York Giants enjoyed a relatively successful stint with former Panthers play caller Kerry Collins, who had even brought them to a Super Bowl appearance in 2000. Mm-hmm. Remember that, Eric? We talked about it. He played pretty well. You know, he he sort of had like a renaissance in his career. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I had heard based in the course of my research that Kerry Collins, I mean, he was the first ever draft pick of the Panthers, ended up burning some bridges in Carolina and then maybe had some substance abuse issues of his own. You know, yeah. things just didn't work out. And you're right. He had a little bit of a career renaissance, I think, culminating in the Giants, you know, going to the Super Bowl under him in 2000. Yeah, and he even in the NFC Championship game, like, tore it up, you know, put up crazy amount of points. Mm-hmm. Had a good foundation. He was coached under Sean Payton. Like, that was his offensive coordinator. Exactly. But at this point in 2004, Collins was in his 30s. And despite playing many years afterwards, he still went on to have a, a decent career. He was far from the quarterback of the future. Mm-hmm. The Giants, you know, wanted to mold. Luckily, the 2004 draft held an abundance of future starters. So the top three consisted of Philip Rivers of NC State, Ben Roethlisberger from Miami of Ohio, and last but not least, Eli Manning. Manning was the prize quarterback of that year's draft, easily the top overall pick. Hailing from a quarterback-centric household, Eli is the son of the old Miss legend and former New Orleans Saint, Archie Manning. Eli's older brother, the first overall pick in 1998, Peyton Manning, mm-hmm was already tearing up the league at that point in time with the Colts. Right. The San Diego Chargers held the first overall pick that year. The Manning camp had made it pretty clear that Eli didn't want to go to Southern California. So much like how John Elway had done with the Baltimore Colts in 1983, Mm -hmm. Manning's tried to force a way out of San Diego. The New York Giants, on the other hand, they picked three spots below in the fourth slot. So they were out of reach for Manning, but still in play for the other two quarterbacks. Interestingly enough, the night of the draft, despite reluctance from Manning, Chargers general manager A.J. Smith went ahead and selected the quarterback. Right, Eli Manning in this instance. Eli Manning. Mm-hmm. The Giants went on to pick Phillip Rivers, but moments later, a trade between both teams would occur that would change the course of NFL history. Eli Manning would be sent to New York in exchange for Phillip Rivers, a third-round pick in 2004 and the first and fifth round picks in 2005. Eli would get his wish, and of course he would find the blue chip player he needed to build the Giants franchise around. Understanding what had taken place that fateful night is a lot more elaborate than at first glance. There was like many tentacles attached to the event. We should definitely take a deeper look at this. This moment in time is now referred to by media and fans as the trade. If I could just interject for a second, I think as a fan myself, this starts to be when we as 28 year old men at this point, where we started to follow the NFL as kids. So we were maybe around, what, 12 years old in 2004. So I think we were, yeah, 
11, 12 years old, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's when you start hearing about, oh, Eli Manning was on the Giants and all this stuff. However, the deeper look at things, I'm, I'm interested to know what that's going to be about. Before we unravel the trade, we got to outline all the major parties involved in this transaction era. The Giants, as we know, they were made up of, of Corsi, Coughlin, and the ownership, which were the Mara and Tish families. Mm-hmm. The San Diego Chargers, they had also gone 4-12 and that previous season. They're owned by the Spanos family, stolen by them, even after they moved to Los Angeles. Veteran coach Marty Schottenheimer led the team in 2004, mm-hmm. while executive A.J. Smith was entering his second season as the general manager. Mm-hmm. The Chargers quarterback at that point in time was Drew Brees. Yeah, you know he was famously drafted by them in the second round, in like two thousand and one. And that season, he had been benched by Schottenheimer for five games and had finished the season with a paltry stat line of eleven touchdowns and fifteen interceptions. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine a thirty-year quarterback with that stat line in today's game would go on to have the career that he has? Yeah, I mean, think about someone like Trubisky. Yeah, exactly. Like, perfect comparison right now. Yeah. You know, I think he's in his, what, fourth year? Is it third or fourth? I I don't remember. Yeah, he's in his, he's drafted in 2017. So yeah, he'd be in his fourth year right now. Right. Going to another team after the fact and having a sort of like quarterback renaissance. Right. Yeah. Much like Kerry Collins, but even better than that. Right, exactly. And and Drew Brees would ultimately unite with former Giants offensive coordinator Sean Payton in New Orleans many, many years later. And that's what spurned that renaissance on. Yeah. So in the middle of, of these two parties, you had Eli Manning, who was accompanied by his father, Archie Manning, and his agent, Tom Condon. Mm-hmm. So like in many other sports, Condon is a super agent representing like the best of the best athletes. As A.J. Smith would put it in an interview to SB Nation, He's like Scott Boris of baseball, prolific in their business, and they try to manipulate the system if they can. They've got great players, they have connections, and they can do certain things. Understandably, Manny was, he was surrounded by people who could influence the game, influence the way things could get done in the NFL. Mm -hmm. So what was the motivation to not play in San Diego, first of all? Eli Manning claims that the decision of not wanting to play was his own, never placing it on his father, Archie Manning. He goes on to say, I made up my mind. I talked to my dad about it, talked to Tom Condon about it. Mm-hmm. We had this plan to kind of say, we'll tell San Diego not to draft you, and hopefully they won't draft you. No one ever knows about it. They draft someone else, and you might get drafted by Oakland, or you might get drafted by Arizona. Those were picks two and three, and then the Giants were four. He said, maybe you slide to four. That was kind of what we were hoping for. Later on in 2013, Eli Manning would publicly admit that he forgot why he wanted to avoid San Diego, (laughs) which is kind of, you know, it seems kind of disingenuous because, you know, that was a really pivotal moment in your life that could have changed the course of your career entirely. I guarantee he doesn't regret trying to pull those strings because look what has happened after all these years, but it's definitely a... A politically correct answer, I'd say. Like, he doesn't want to, you know, disrupt much. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I'm sure after, what did you say, it was 2013? So after, like, nine years of probably being asked that question, 
intermittently. I'm sure he's like, oh, I, I, I forget why I even and, wanted to do it. After winning two Super Bowls. Exactly. Archie Manning would always speak on behalf of Eli, but would never assume responsibility for trying to force a move. As he claims on the Regisons show in 2016, most people thought I orchestrated it, which I didn't. I don't tell my kids what to do or make decisions for them. Mm-hmm. So many would agree with that assertion. Peter King, for one, he would draw parallels to Archie's unfortunate time in the NFL. Mm-hmm. In the 70s, Archie Manning played for a failed New Orleans Saints franchise and never reached the top tier of the professional world. I don't know if you remember watching like NFL Network. Yeah. Uh, that particular time in Saints history, they would always call them the Aints because they would never win. And fans would wear paper bags over their heads yep. because they were so embarrassed with the performance of the team. <laughs> yeah. That was when Archie Manning played. Despite him actually being a pretty good quarterback, he went to the Pro Bowl two times. The team was just dysfunctional. Luckily, like that's where the Mannings actually grew up. Like That's where Peyton grew up, played high school ball, even Eli as well. Mm-hmm. They all went to the same high school You know that Odell Beckham actually attended. Yeah, I was going to say that's what kind of helped to foster the connection with Odell, right? Because he's yeah. from Louisiana as well. Exactly. So similar to the New Orleans Saints, San Diego Chargers had never won a Super Bowl or had established a proper winning culture. Hard to imagine with his connections and pulling around football, Archie Manning had absolutely no say as to what Eli's future would look like. Right, exactly. And also, you would imagine that even having Peyton in the league at that point, he would have a sense of what kind of organizations you want to work for. Like, I mean, the Mannings are considered to be, as cheesy as it sounds, they're considered to be football royalty, right? Or like one of the first families of football, so. Yeah, exactly. Even when Peyton was drafted in 1998. Mm-hmm. There's stories of him going into the interview room with Indianapolis yeah. and San Diego, and he's asking them questions. He's basically auditioning them for his services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like he even tells the Colts, he's like, I'm going to be kicking your butt for the next 15, 20 years if you don't draft me. They're putting themselves in a position to really call the shots. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they realize how valuable of an asset they are to any sort of franchise. I'm sure they're being very coy about it because if Archie ever admitted, you know, that he had anything to do with the decision, then that would lead to way more questions that they don't want to answer. Yeah, they don't want to cause as much disruption, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of makes sense as to why Eli Manning would say he forgets in 2013. Right, exactly. What is certain, though, is Archie did not want Eli to have the same career trajectory, you know? He didn't want Eli to have an unsuccessful career like he had in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. That's safe to say, right? In a tell-all interview with news website SB Nation, former general manager AJ Smith, who was the general manager for the Chargers at that time, gives his insights on that trade. In the interview, he makes like some wild accusations, pointing out the parties that were involved. Smith claims that Condon, Archie, and even the Giants were secretly in cahoots. So he would say, we had a good visit with Archie, and expressed our vision for the future of this team, and that there was a strong possibility that Eli might be picked by us with the first pick. Mm-hmm. Condon told me that Archie wishes that we do not select Eli, and that they think he would be a good fit in New York with the Giants. The question really is, why New York out of all teams? It's probably that Condon wanted to avoid the top three teams altogether, so picking in that order before New York was San Diego, then the Oakland Raiders, 
than the Arizona Cardinals. Mm-hmm. A big market like New York would also be more equipped to handle a potential superstar. We're talking about a guy who comes from a lineage quarterbacking. Peyton Manning is the hottest thing in the NFL. Right. You know? And Eli is potentially, and we'll get into this when I read you a Corsi scouting report of him, mm. projected to have an even better career than Peyton, which you know ends up not being true. Smith would go on to say, the information they gathered and that I had was that the Bidwells in Arizona, which is the ownership, are very, very cheap. And the Manning camp didn't want any part of that organization. They wanted no part of San Diego because of me. I was a scout that was a novice GM. So like they just didn't essentially trust him in the direction of the franchise. Right. Conan was familiar with general manager AJ Smith because not only did he represent Eli, but he represented coach Marty Schottenheimer and their quarterback Drew Brees as well. Conan was displeased with the way coach Schottenheimer handled Brees, constantly benching him, like I'd mentioned before. Right. Ladanian Tomlinson was also emerging as a superstar and essentially the focal point of the team. So whichever quarterback was there would lose some of that spotlight, right? Yeah, exactly. Throughout the course of NFL history, the importance of the quarterback position has increased. But like from the early 2000s up until now, we see like a jump in that. We constantly want to get the guy to build our team around, right? Well, yeah, and it's kind of like the main platitudes of the NFL, like, oh, it's a passing league, you know, so you need yeah. to have a quarterback to build around. To go back to LaDainian Tomlinson, in 2004, you could still cater a whole team like around the running back, as long as you had a decent passer at the quarterback position. Mm-hmm. Like, LT was definitely more utilized back then than he would be today. Yeah. I would say I think that'd be a fair assumption. Yeah. Not only was that a factor, but one of Smith's sources also mentions that Schottenheimer wasn't long for the place. So he wasn't necessarily in it for the long term in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And it's very possible that that sentiment was probably expressed to his agent, Tom Condon, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you have those factors. So Condon is already linked to the Chargers franchise in many other ways. So there's that deep knowledge there, you know, and he's definitely advising Eli on these factors. You know, he has Drew Brees and he has Schoenheimer, which are his clients. So it's his personal interest. Right. As an agent, he probably doesn't probably wants both of his quarterbacks to start. Right. Yeah. And to both have lucrative deals. It's in his best interest to not have Eli Manning play for the San Diego Chargers as well, right? Yeah, because then what happens to Breeze, right? Exactly. Mm. Knowing all of this firsthand, Smith still decided to select Eli with the likelihood of him receiving compensation in exchange for the quarterback. Mm -hmm. So the only time this could backfire is if Eli Manning says, you know what, I'm not playing this year, I'm going to come back the following year, right? Right. But then there's a risk associated with that. Eli Manning decides he's not going to play. He has to come back in the 2005 NFL draft instead. Yeah, and at that point, if you're Eli, you're already being valued as like the number one quarterback in the class, right? The conventional wisdom is that Eli was going to go first overall, right? So how could you not hurt your draft stock by playing an extra year and potentially who knows what will happen in a year, right? A perfect example of that would be and I know like hindsight's 2020 and Justin Herbert is playing really, really well as we speak. You know, mm-hmm. he's playing top 10 quarterback ish level despite them losing. But had he come out the year before where the Giants picked really high, I know that they were really 
in, like Gettleman was really in on Justin Herbert, mm-hmm. could have potentially garnered some attention at that first overall spot, right? Sure. Eventually he comes out and he gets picked sixth behind Tua and Joe Burrow. Mm-hmm. That sort of stuff happens. In 2005, Alex Smith and Aaron Rodgers come out. Who's to say that the evaluation sort of changes a year later? Yeah. And drops. In terms of being a draft pick, you're Eli, you're at the peak of your value at that point. You know, exactly. In terms of to the yeah. franchise, right? So you hold all the cards in your hand. So why would you give up that leverage in terms of yeah. you know, where you want to be? Just out of spite. And then you don't know who drafts first overall the following year. Right, exactly. Smith also believes that the Chargers internally had a leak that would relay information back to the Giants and Ernie Corsi. The best team positioned and equipped to take on a contract like Eli Manning's. Mm-hmm. And the compensation thing is kind of important. I mentioned earlier with Arizona being cheap, because this is before the rookie contract deal, before I think it was 2011 when they had the lockout. Rookie quarterbacks made good money. It wasn't cost-effective to just draft anybody, you know, in the first round. Yeah. One of the reasons why we're seeing such a churn in quarterbacks, why Josh Rosen gets picked and then the following year Kyler Murray gets picked, is that it's so cost-effective to move their contracts. Yeah. I think the last person for that, it was uh, Sam Bradford, right? Who got like a massive deal. Sam Bradford. The Chargers general manager also lays claim that he used this leak to his advantage. So to get information back to New York so he could further the deal. Hmm. He would say, I played the game for our best interest is the way I'll put it. First part of it was saying I'd call him, of course, in this scenario, back on a Friday. I had no intention of calling him back prior to the draft. I just let that go. So like he was sort of playing games. Mm-hmm. You know, on Friday morning, I discussed it with Dean Spanos and Ed McGuire, who is our capologist and director of football operations. I told them I was going to inform a particular person, let's call them the shadow, so the league he refers to as the shadow, in our organization. But I was telling this person that I'm going to be calling the Giants once seven and a half minutes to go in the draft to give them an opportunity to come up with a deal. If they can't, I'd just say I'd have some bad news. If it doesn't work to our liking, we'll just be out of a first-round draft pick. On that night, the deal was actually worked out really, really quickly. He says like it came together so fast, it was almost comical. Huh. The Giants offered Philip Rivers, if they selected him, a third-rounder in 2004 and mm-hmm. a first-rounder in 2005. The Chargers also requested a 2004 second-round pick, but the Giants refused. This selection would go on to be used on lineman Chris Snee, who yeah. all the Giants love, you know, a critical part of that organization. Definitely. That of time. Definitely. They would then renegotiate for an additional fifth in 2005, in which the Giants would reluctantly oblige. Wellington Mara, from the onset, was against the entire deal, out of loyalty to Kerry Collins. The rest of the organization was fully behind wanting to get their quarterback of the future. For what it's worth, also, I heard somewhere that the Chargers picks ended up becoming Vincent Jackson, Sean Merriman was one of the picks, and then Nate Keating, their kicker, was another one of those picks. And I believe... The other pick, they they traded away for player, I believe. Okay, okay. At that point, it was good for both parties, and it ended up working out. I'd say. I'd say that Phillip Rivers was by no stretch a failure in San Diego. Oh, no, he had a great career, right? Yeah. They just can never close it in the playoffs. You know, they can never get past the Patriots. That was their sort of Achilles heel. Yeah, exactly. So what was happening from the Giants' end 
of the transaction. Acorsi has since revealed that he knew the call from Smith was going to happen, but he claims that a media member told him that San Diego would call halfway through their 15-minute clock. Uh-huh. He says he knows who A.J. Smith believes was his leak or shadow. So he goes on to say, I have a feeling I know who he suspects there because Schottenheimer and I were really close. We are to this day, but I respected his integrity and he respected mine. You know how A.J. Smith says, oh, I took advantage of this leak to relay information to the Giants? Yeah. Of course, he believes that Smith thinks that it's his head coach at the time. Remember when we talked about Acorsi's past in the previous episode, Eric? Yes. While he was general manager of the Cleveland Browns, Schottenheimer was in fact coach of the team for three of those years. So right before Bill Belichick ends up on that staff. Mm -hmm. Knowing this information, at that point in time, it's very hard for someone like A.J. Smith to avoid this fact during the whole process. You know what I mean? Exactly. And this is where, like, it's interesting because the more you do research, especially in current times, you realize how much of a political game front offices are in the NFL. Yeah. You know, my favorite podcast, The GM Shuffle, you know, Michael Lombardi always says that the head coach position is an elected position, not a selected position, meaning that you got to win the primaries. You got to get so many people on board that the ownership group is left with no choice but to take you, you know? Yeah, it's a not-so-well-kept secret that you need to have connections in the league. Positions in terms of coaching staff and executives are always kind of shuffled around between teams, and you can draw entire webs of connections between coaches and executives. So, I mean, the fact that Schottenheimer and Nicorsi knew each other doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I believe that Schottenheimer was also a coach for the Giants at some point for maybe a year or two. He was like a linebackers coach or something. Having those connections and making those connections is, you know, a really good way of moving up in the NFL. Yeah, he was he was actually in fact the linebackers coach from 75 to 76. There you go. And then the defensive coordinator in 77. So it wasn't a long time, but there's a web there, you know, there's definitely. connecting lines. That's definitely something that was always in the back of AJ Smith's mind. You know, definitely. can I fully trust this guy? Especially we're in a losing season, you know, he could potentially lose his job. So he's gotta look for connections elsewhere, you know? I mean, and think about the Chargers anyway, based on what I know of those years, the fact that they were able to select LT and Breeze in the first place was because they drafted Ryan Leaf previously. So, I mean, that's completely separate organizations, but there is definitely a losing culture in San Diego at that time. Mm -hmm. And even despite them having some relative success over the last 10 to 15 years, Mm -hmm. they've just never been able to to win anything right and even in los angeles right now like it's things are looking good because they have the quarterback of the future but a lot of teams consider them second fiddle to the rams Mm. yeah exactly a losing culture is kind of endemic for them just the chargers as an organization but like they play really well and on paper they should always be better than they are but they always find a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory you know for me they were one of the most exciting teams to watch in the 2000s definitely i mean think about the players that they had like in their heyday vincent jackson like lt broke the touchdown record for a single season for a running back antonio gates was lighting stuff up you know he was a basketball player from kent you know the, the next best thing since tony gonzalez yeah they were great 
So going back to the deal itself, here's another thing that would prove Smith's point, that there was a leak. Of course, he says that the deal was easy to make as long as defensive end O.C. Yermanura was off the table. Smith claims to have mentioned O.C.'s name for fun during the phone call in which they both burst out laughing. So he says, I'm just kidding, Ernie. Now, how much time do we have? Minutes and boom, there it was. Deal was done. So Corsi, though, did take a leap of faith by selecting Rivers because alternatively, he would have wanted the third quarterback instead. Big Ben Roethlisberger was his top option after Eli Manning. In an interview with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, he goes on to say, everybody thought my second choice was Rivers, but that wasn't the case. Roethlisberger was. That was almost a jump ball with us, Roethlisberger and Eli. We scouted Roethlisberger very, very thoroughly. Both Eli and Ben's pro days were flawless. I almost froze to death sitting outside watching on Mobile. He threw for four touchdowns in the first quarter or the first 20 minutes. He was on fire. I loved him. We all did. I would have been happy with Rivers, but I wanted Ben. I took a risk. If he would have called back and said, I'm backing out of this trade, there's no Ben for me. So it's hard to... To assume that, of course, he just did it without having external information, you know, not equipping himself with all the possible resources before actually making the transaction. Yeah, Um, but I mean, it just goes to show like how easily it could have been somebody else, how easily it could have been Ben Roethlisberger or even Rivers at that point. But yeah, you would think that he would want some type of assurance or something more than just, you know, word of mouth. Yeah. before making a decision like that but you never know man that's like especially if you are sort of you know in the background talking to Eli Manning's camp and they're making it obvious that there is no way they're playing in San Diego and they're going to force their way out no matter what so mm-hmm. even if the draft was over they could have probably made a deal then you know John Elway wasn't officially traded to the Denver Broncos till like days later True. It's still very possible, but yeah, it's, you know, there's there's high-tension situations happening, and I personally think if, of course, he wasn't equipped with the proper information, he probably would have been more intention to select Ben and not go with all that risk, you know? Yeah, I agree. And just thinking about it, like, off the top of my head, like, imagine you're making a trade, and then you're AJ Smith, and you back out of it. That kind of stuff, from what I understand about... GMs and like in league circles, which is admittedly not a whole lot, but I would think that that would get you kind of blacklisted if you were to agree to this deal and then back out of it, you know, mm-hmm. at the last second. That kind of yeah, thing that... is not good etiquette as a GM to do that. Yeah, as well as like when you make transactions in the future, you know, you're trying to trade draft picks or you're trying to trade other players on your roster, people are just not going to want to deal with you because of how you shafted. Yeah, I definitely think that there's things that had happened that they aren't mentioning. You know, like I I believe that of course he knows way more than he leads on in these interviews. Mm -hmm. Regardless, the Giants would have been fine had they selected Roethlisberger. That would have been pretty cool. He sort of fits the Northeast cold weather quarterback. I think they would have made it work. Mm -hmm. But this way, the way it turned out, so much more iconic. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, we've all heard the comparisons between Rivers and Eli, and to an extent, Big Ben and Rivers and Eli. I think either way, it probably would have worked out for all parties involved. Yeah. Because I think all three of them had very solid careers. 
I think it differentiates with Roethlisberger is that he was selected much later with Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh was always competing, and they were able to always build a good team regardless of who the quarterback was. Mm-hmm. Whereas these other two guys were coming in to be more of a savior, and true that comparison is right. Like how much more did Rivers do for his team versus Eli or vice versa? That's where the comparison is, right? Right. That's a good. Like point. in the second year, Roethlisberger wins the Super Bowl, right? Mm-hmm. So then he sort of like put on the fray, and the comparison is always between the other two. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the infrastructure was definitely already there for the the Steelers as opposed to the Chargers or or Giants. But I mean, it's just interesting to to think that a deal like that that would shape the course of NFL history would be teetering on a seven minute conversation and like the back and forth of what goes on between yeah. GMs and between organizations. It's just. It's funny to think about it and look at it from that perspective. Yeah, so while I was researching this, I actually found a Corsi scouting report of Eli. Do uh-huh. you want me to read it? It's pretty good. Yeah, sure. And I like, I guess this is the way they, like, a lot of people will just casually jot down notes while they, while they watch prospects. So he goes on to say, whereas left knee brace during pregame warm-up didn't look like he had a rocket arm. As game progressed, I saw excellent arm strength under pressure, and the ability to get the velocity on the ball on most throws. Good deep ball range, good touch, good vision and poise. Sees the field in shotgun on most plays, and his only running option is a draw. His offensive line is poor. Red shirt, freshman, left tackle. Don't make notes of that. Like, who do you play with, right? Mm-hmm. Eli doesn't trust his protection. Can't. No weight. he can take any form of a deep drop and look downfield. With no running game, 10 yards rushing the first half, so I guess that was the game he watched. And no real top receivers. He's stuck with the three-step drops and waiting till the last second to see if a receiver can get free. No tight end either. No flaring back. So he's taking some big hits. Taking them well. Carried an overmatched team entirely on his shoulders. Hmm. I imagine, except for Vanderbilt, his team is overmatched in every SEC game. He's big, never gets rattled. You know, that's fair to say about Eli. Like, he... He's always been like the cool guy, even though he has like a dog mouth sort of expression <laughs> on the sideline. Yeah. Rallied his team from a 14 to 3 halftime deficit basically all by himself. Led the team on two consecutive third quarter drives to go ahead, 17 16. The first touchdown, a 40 yard streak down the left sideline. He dropped the ball over the receiver's right shoulder. Called the next touchdown pass himself, checking off to a 12 yard slant. Makes a lot of decisions on play calls at the line of scrimmage, but they ask too much of him. They don't just let him play. I find that interesting because they're basically creating a narrative. And like, I feel that when this gets into like decision day and when they start creating a plan for Eli, mm-hmm. they take these things into account, right? Definitely. So like, what can we do? What can Coughlin do to make this guy just play? Mm-hmm. This is a guy you should just let play. When he's inaccurate, he's usually high but rarely off target to either side. Play smart with complete confidence. Doesn't scold his teammates, but lets them know they line up wrong or run the wrong pattern. Through three interceptions, two were his fault. Trying to force something both times. Could have run on one of them a fourth down play. He has a lot to learn. So summary. Mm-hmm. I think he's the complete package. He's not going to be a fast runner, but a little like Joe Montana. He has enough athletic ability to get out of trouble. Remember how Archie ran in that department? Eli doesn't have the best genes, <laughs> although I never timed Mom Olivia in the 40. He has a feel for the pocket, 
feels the rush, throws the ball, takes the hit, gets right back up. He has courage and poise. In my opinion, most of all, he has a quality you can't define. Call it magic. Peyton had much better talent around him at Tennessee, but I'd honestly give this guy a chance to be better than his brother. Eli doesn't get much help from the coaching staff. If he comes out early, we should move up to take him. These guys are rare, you know. So I would agree with most of that, besides from the fact that Eli is better than Peyton Manning. Well, yeah. He doesn't really say that he is better than him. He says that Peyton has more, more talent to work with coming out of college mm-hmm. and that Eli could potentially have a better career than him, yeah. which he did at one point because Peyton took a while to get his second Super Bowl. But statistically, I don't think it's close. Yeah, I I don't think Eli was ever a stuffer of the stat sheet, so to speak. It was more the intangible qualities that really led him to being great. But I also think, like, if you're writing a scouting report, you say he's got a chance to be better than his brother. You know, a lot of that is like, it's like a shiny new toy kind of thing of like, oh, we got to draft this guy and, you know, he's a chance to be better than Than Peyton but I mean I think for the most part his scouting report is fairly accurate you know like the fact that he's rarely inaccurate but when he is inaccurate he's high yeah I've counted I can think of a, a few instances of where like he misses throws high like he he did miss throws high and he was right in terms of his temperament and everything like he's portrayed as a mild-mannered guy but then He's always, you know, always gets up after being hit and never gets, lets the high get too high and never lets the low get too low, you know? Yeah, I think his floor was really high. That was what I would take away from Eli Manning's career. I think he, aside from the last couple of years where, you know, he just didn't perform well. Right. He, his baseline performance level was always above average. I think, though, after that 2007 season, 2008, where he actually put up pretty good stat line, I was under the impression that like there was going to be this like elite trajectory where he would consistently be in the top five mm-hmm. in terms of quarterbacks in the league. But they sort of fizzled out, and then they, they rebounded and ended up winning the second Super Bowl. But it was never mainly because of Eli. I think that where you really saw his leadership shine or the, his quality as a quarterback was when they finally got to the playoffs and not necessarily... Yeah. Like during the regular season, right? So from what I... Yeah, he was pretty cool during the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. Statistically speaking, his career numbers are very much like a roller coaster, very up and down. And you can actually like track it throughout the years, right? But in terms of, you know, him winning the Super Bowls and everything, you, you can't really take that away from him. And I think as a playoff performer, he definitely like paid off for Corsi. Yeah especially that second Super Bowl run, he put up like some good statistics. You know, he played really well against the 49ers. Mm. That was cool. Yeah, that was great. He is a great quarterback. And like the debate rages on of like, should he be a Hall of Famer or not? I believe he should be. If you just look at the numbers, even looking at Rivers or Roethlisberger or, or Peyton, I think that they were better statistically. But in terms of winning and winning at the right times, I would go with Eli, you know, 10 times out of 10. One of the reasons... I found this podcast very interesting while I was doing the research and stuff Uh is that there was a constant question of whether this could happen again in the NFL. And interestingly enough, we're in week 14 of the NFL season 
And there is a team that has yet to win a game, which are the New York Jets. Mm-hmm. And there's a quarterback coming out, potentially coming out, that is supposed to be a generational talent in Trevor Lawrence. Right. The Jets have been relatively dysfunctional, and they haven't had sustained success. And they've only won one Super Bowl, and that was like years ago. That was like Super Bowl three. So Exactly. Yeah. Do you think it is possible that someone like Trevor Lawrence, if he does come out, because he could still decide to wait a year, especially during this turbulent time with COVID and lack of college football games being played. Mm-hmm. If he decides to come out, do you think it's possible that he might force something like this with the Jets? Because the Jets front office is dysfunctional. Adam Gase is their, is their coach. And I know everyone at the moment thinks he's the worst person alive, um, especially <laughs> you know New York media members. Mm-hmm. They just hate talking to him. Even if they do get a decent coach, let's say, do you think it's possible that he's like, oh, this, I want to go to a, an organization that has done it before? I mean, it's always possible, in my opinion, with COVID going on and everything, you do bring up a good point that like, you would want it to be your last season to kind of be a regular season. But I think that with Eli and John Elway being the rare exceptions, there's always talk of, you know, the number one QB going or the number one overall pick like not coming out or wanting to play for a different team and I think that for the most part it's done as leverage maybe you get a few more perks for being selected first overall like there was talk about Joe Burrow not wanting to go to the Cincinnati Bengals before the draft and everything like that he could request a trade or do something like that I think there's always going to be that narrative because by virtue of the team being the first overall pick, you are the worst team in the league. You know what I mean? Like, you are literally the worst team in the league. Yeah. So it's not like people are going to be psyched to come play for you, but I don't know. I don't think it would be wise of Trevor Lawrence, especially because you never know what's going to happen in a year. You know, it's like you can't really hold out to be better than the first overall pick. I think if he does decide to declare, which he will be the first overall pick, it's going to be a constant headline going into draft season. I think the comparison will be made by a lot of media outlets to what Eli Manning did because Trevor Lawrence does have a lot more power than many previous quarterbacks that have come out. Mm-hmm. Sort of this Andrew Luck, and even potentially better than Andrew Luck style prospect. You know, he's just dominated the high school level, elite eleven, and then going into his rookie year. At Clemson, he wins the national championship. So there's no quarterback in our time that has done it quite like Trevor Lawrence before coming out of, to the NFL. So we'll see. I think, it, I think it'll be interesting. Where I think he will influence the Jets mm-hmm. the most might not be in forcing a trade out. I think it is in requesting certain things to equip him with so he could be successful. <laughs> He'll probably look at someone like Joe Burrow and say like, I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to get spanked, you know, 20 times a game and end up missing half of the season. And tearing your ACL and PCL and whatever else. Exactly. We are garbage, but make sure that doesn't happen to me. Oh, man. Yeah. It's so sad to think about that. That that, that happened to Joe Burrow, man. Like, Jesus. The Bengals killed him already, man. Exactly. Anyway. I think you're well within your rights to request 
you know, that you'd be protected and that you'd be put in the best position to win. I mean, like, obviously that would be the assumption of somebody coming in. And like, you look at the value of a quarterback to an organization, you would think that whoever drafts you is going to have you in their best interests, but might not always be the case. It's interesting to think about, you know, the way that history has gone in terms of this trade and, and now cycling forward however many years later, 16, 17 years later, the same scenario could hypothetically happen. It is interesting. So, yeah, just a, a thing to keep on the radar mm-hmm. as we get into April and stuff. But, yeah, nonetheless, it's a fun podcast to work on. One of the most pivotal times in current Giants history. I think it all worked out for the best, right? I think so, too. I think there were winners on on all sides of this equation. Now that kind of sets the stage for the Giants of the 2000s and and the 10s, really. Again, as I mentioned, this is when we started to become football fans. So it's interesting to put this all into context now and be able to share that with you. So now the Giants have who they think is their franchise cornerstone and Eli Manning. The Chargers get their guy in Phillip Rivers, and the the trade ended up working out. But it was really interesting to know a little bit more about the front office side of things and the the internal politics of uh, everything that was going on at that point. Thanks for listening again, and uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Check down Charlie's on Twitter, and we will catch you in the next episode. So thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Check Down Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlies on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlies on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.